Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, January 9th, we are starting the new year of programming with a new series on Sharper Iron. It's called The Word Made Flesh. Starting today and continuing all the way through the week of Easter, we will be reading through the gospel according to St. John. The fourth gospel is by no means in fourth place. The account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection written by the beloved disciple has always been beloved by Christians. Remember the wonder of water turned into wine. Think of the comfort that our Lord gives through his I am statements and recite that verse that every Christian would do well to learn by heart the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All that and more comes from the pen of St. John. In today's program, we will introduce the gospel as a whole and study the first text, John 1 verses 1 to 5. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. William Weinrich. Dr. Weinrich serves as Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he is also the author of the first two volumes of the Commentary on John in the Concordia Commentary series from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Weinrich, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much, Tim. Great to be with you. We really appreciate you coming on the program with us today, Dr. Weinrich, to talk about the gospel according to St. John. So let's let's start with the name of the gospel, John, and the author, John. Tell us a little bit about the author of this gospel. Well, uh, certainly traditionally, and I think uh, even as a historian with some some confidence, one can say that the author was John, son of Zebedee, so one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, This authorship is, as I say, is traditional. It's very, very early. Uh, Although we're one to read the Gospel of John itself, uh, one would not find any direct reference to authorship. In the Gospel of John, I think the authorship is rather indirectly or implicitly given uh, under the nomenclature of the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we see this disciple who is with Mary at the foot of the cross there in John 19. And then when the water and blood flow from the side of Jesus, we hear this disciple giving witness. These things uh, he saw and he witnesses and his witness is true. And then he says that he gives this witness in order that you might believe. This echoes the, the purpose statement of John's gospel that we find in John 20, 30 and 31, that these things have been written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the anointed, usually 
in our translations, it's the Christ, but it's better translated the anointed and the Son of God. So what we see here in John 19 is kind of what I believe is kind of an implicit testimony that the beloved disciple, that, who is traditionally identified with John, son of Zebedee, was in fact the, the author of this gospel. One other indication of this, again, under the nomenclature of the beloved disciple, is the fact that in John 13, he is said to recline upon the breast of Jesus. Uh, this corresponds and parallels to what we find in John 1.18, where we are told that no one has ever seen God, the only Son who is himself God. And then we have this interesting phraseology, who, who is eston kalpon tu patras, who is on the bosom of the Father. And then we are told, he has made the Father known. So this, this physical posture of reclining upon another's breast seems to indicate, yes, a, a certain friendly intimacy if one wants, but more significantly, it seems to indicate the identity of the true interpreter, if one will. And so just as the Son who reclines eternally upon the breast of the Father is the revealer of the Father, he who has seen me has seen my Father in heaven who sent me. So using that analogy then and that correspondence, the beloved disciple seems to be directly indicated as the interpreter of Jesus, which in our context would mean, I think, the author of this gospel text. Oh. I, well, that's a that's a very interesting connection that I'd, I'd never heard before, but I really, really appreciate you bringing that out. That's a, a fantastic connection. So about this this title that that the author, traditionally John, gives to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, what why why does he refer to himself in that way? what's the what's the significance of him using that title for himself? Well, I, I think I think the honest answer is no one really knows. Fair enough, sure. <laughs> so but perhaps we can make some observations. First of all, uh, as I say, it might well mean a certain friendly intimacy. But I think that would be secondary or tertiary to the significance of the title. Um, I think it has more to do with the underlying theme of this gospel that we find also in 1 John, for example, that God is love. And in John's gospel, this love of God is manifested I, I would even say instant, instantiated, that is to say, made concrete and real in the crucified Jesus. You quoted John 3.16 in your opening, for example. God so loved, that's a, actually a retrospective terminology, in that way did God love the world, and it's referring to the lifted up Son of Man in John 3.14. So the crucified Jesus is the manifestation and the concretization, if one will, of 
paternal love. And I think then John, as what I will now call him as the apostle of divine love, uh, knows himself to be also the recipient of that love. And so I think he designates himself what, in a way, that would become really a common designation of the Christian community. Uh, as a pastor, you know, for example, as you introduce yourself or begin the liturgy in your congregation, you might address the congregation as beloved in the Lord. Yeah. Well, th this, this title, it's, it's really a title as, which refers to the recipients of paternal love by those who, and I think I'm right in this kind of extension of the idea, who by way of their baptism have been united to Christ in his death. And so live the life of divine charity uh, toward their neighbor and, of course, in worship toward God the Father. Uh, that, that's a very helpful explanation. As you said, we can't know for sure why he refers to himself in that way, but I, I think the the thought that, yes, God is love, and so we are the beloved of God, that's the the best thing John can think to call himself is the one whom God loves. And so it is for, for all exactly. his people. Yeah, what a, what a wonderful thing. And you're right, it's, it is there in the liturgy, beloved in the Lord. Let us draw near with a true heart. Yeah, and, and I, the pastor who confirmed me, he often uh, addressed the people of God in his sermons saying, people God dearly loves. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, so what a, what a fantastic way for, for John to put that in his own gospel. So the author, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, what about a date and place, Dr. Weinrich? I know you, you mentioned earlier that there's there are traditions, uh, and, and John being the author is certainly a, a very solid tradition. And, and, and generally, I, when I think of John, I think of John as the last gospel written. And I know you write a little bit about this in your, in your commentary that, that you maybe fall into a minority opinion, but I'm just curious if you could lay out briefly just some of those, those contours. Yes, uh, certainly the traditional opinion, uh, and probably still today the majority view, is that John wrote the Gospel of John late. He was the last of the Gospel writers. He wrote it late in the first century, let us say in the middle of the 90s that he wrote this gospel also in Ephesus, or at least someplace in Asia Minor, which would today be Western Turkey, uh, and often associated with that, uh, that date and placement is the idea that John wrote against certain early heretical emphases, sometimes called docetism, which was a view that the divine son or the divine word, although he might have appeared to have been truly human or man, in fact was not. So the humanity of Christ was more or less a phantasm. And indeed, in 1 John, that docetic view, in fact, comes explicitly into view. And so it's often the case in the scholarly literature that 1 John is thought to precede, historically speaking, the Gospel of John. Uh, I do have a, a more of a minority view, although I'm by no means alone in this, I am happy to say. Uh, but 
In my judgment, John's gospel might well be quite early, and uh, I would date it. I think it's impossible, really, just to kind of nail down a particular year or so. Mm. But I would have, I would be comfortable with any dating, say between forty-five and sixty. And the reason for this is, uh, well, let me talk a little bit about place. I also do not believe that John was written in Asia Minor or Ephesus. I think it was written in Palestine and most likely in Jerusalem itself. Um, and I don't believe it has in view the later docetism that we do find in 1 John. Its target is rather the Jewish community, of especially perhaps Jerusalem, but more broadly speaking. And so Jesus is depicted as the incarnated Torah, the incarnated, yes, usually we think of word, but word entailed also the idea of will. So one could say he's the incarnated will of God. And so Jesus would be the human form of the divine will, uh, but also purpose. And so this, this language, which we'll probably talk about a little later, that meets us in the very first verse, in the beginning was the logos entails a speech, an address, uh, which in, includes divine intention and will. And so I think the audience then is not a strange later Christological issue, but a direct reappropriation, Christological appropriation of the Jewish commitment to the Torah. Now, why do I think, are there aspects of John's gospel that lead me to think that it may be Jerusalem-based and early? And let me just mention two or three items here. Uh, one of the fascinating aspects of John's gospel, and in this he's quite distinct from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that virtually 80 to 85 percent of John's gospel is in fact said to have occurred in Jerusalem. If you start with 7 verse 2, Jesus is never outside of Jerusalem except in places very nearby like Bethany in John 11 and John 12. So it's a deeply Jerusalem-based gospel text. And, uh, and that corresponds then to the centrality in John's gospel of the temple. Uh, Jesus is depicted very early on, already in John 2, with the so-called cleansing of the temple. He is and I, I will specify the crucified Jesus is said to be the eschatological temple where God will eternally dwell. And so I, I don't quite believe that this centrality of temple imagery and thematics, the location of so much of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, makes any sense after the year 70 when the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. I think this it really tends to cast my vision into earlier time frame. Hmm. Then we might think of more kind of detailed 
indications. For example, I mentioned a little early on in the broadcast that instead of thinking of speaking of Jesus as the Christ, which is really just a transliteration of Christos, it's better just to have the translation anointed. Well, in John's gospel, quite unlike elsewhere in the New Testament, the anointed still has a titular meaning. Later on, we hear of Jesus Christ. At that point, Christ has a nominal meaning. It becomes a name, like John Paul or something like that. Uh, but the anointed in John's gospel is still, in any number of places, very titular in character. And that would suggest also an earlier date. Then, interestingly, there are significant correspondences between John's gospel and the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. And among other things, I'm thinking of the explicit association, both in John as well as in those early chapters of Acts, between Peter and John. Uh, and so I would actually place then the, the date of John's gospel, the, the pretty much the historical circumstances for the original writing of John's gospel, roughly within the historical context that we see in, say, chapters 3 to 6 or so, 3 to 7 of John, of the Acts of the Apostles. Hmm. Well, Dr. Weinrich, I appreciate you laying out some of those matters and, and sharing both the, the traditional view and then the, the minority view of the earlier date and perhaps a different place. And it is a, I find it to be a helpful reminder that there are uh, Christian scholars who hold to a high view of the Scripture, who believe that this is God's inspired word, inerrant for us of, of all time. Uh, who can disagree on these things and may have uh, different reasons for, for looking at those things. So Absolutely. appreciate you, you laying those things out for both the, the date and the place. In, in conversation already, you've, you've talked a little bit about the purpose. You mentioned John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. And in my mind, that, that serves very well as a purpose statement, and really not only for the gospel of John, but for the entirety of the scriptures as, as I see them. I, I want to talk a little bit, though, because I imagine we'll talk a little bit about purpose and, and more themes when we get into the text we've got for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about something that you did mention briefly in, in talking about the role of Jerusalem in the gospel of John and how so much of John takes place in Jerusalem or right around it, especially when compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic. So, so-called synoptic gospels, you don't have to read through these four gospels very long to see that that John is following a different outline than the than the three synoptic writers. So, can you talk a little bit about what John is up to in his in his outline? Some of those unique features of of John's gospel. I mean, yeah. Well, have at it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it is also commonplace. Uh, to think that John, especially if he were the last of the gospel writers, that he perhaps knew and used one or the other of the synoptic gospels. Oftentimes, Mark is mentioned here. Oftentimes, Luke is mentioned. In my judgment, uh, because I think it probably is an earlier gospel, uh, I don't I really don't believe that John had access. Maybe he knew, who knows. But I don't think he is writing in view of the synoptic accounts. 
his account is simply so thoroughgoingly different. Uh, not only in terms of the place, but keep in mind in, in the synoptic accounts, Jesus is in Jerusalem only in the last week. Uh, and in John's gospel, as I say, his very first public activity, taking away the wedding of Cana, which is up in Galilee, but then immediately he's in Jerusalem and he's cleansing the temple. And so you have in John's gospel, what is in the very end of the synoptic accounts, the cleansing of the temple, for example, is up front in John's gospel. Uh, and that, uh, and as someone who kind of wants to read this gospel text, if you will, as a, as a, a meaningful and thematic narrative, I have to take an account as to why it might be that the cleansing of the temple is the first thing that John that Jesus does in John's gospel. Of course, it raises the question, uh, which is oftentimes of great interest to, to laity and even pastors, whether there was one or two cleansings of the temple. I'm not yeah. sure one can really answer this question with any certainty. But what we can see is that in John's gospel, it is up front. And that already then alerts one that the issue of the temple and also then of sacrifice, because that's what a temple is for, is for the sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins, but also for the dwelling of God, is going to be a significant and central thematic for this gospel text. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, indeed, it is so. One of the things, Tim, that I did not mention when kind of talking about the date is that in John's gospel, and in this he, again, is totally different than the synoptic accounts, is that not only is the Passover festival of central importance, but in John's gospel, the festival of tabernacles is crucial. Mm -hmm. In the synoptic accounts, the festival of tabernacles, as, as far as I can see, is not even implicitly mentioned at all. But in John's gospel, it governs much of the, of the, of the content of this gospel text. In fact, John 7, 8, 9, and 10, including the Good Shepherd Discourse, lies explicitly within the context of Jesus being in Jerusalem during the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, the Festival of Tabernacles was a festival which had the temple in Jerusalem as the central object of eschatological hope. Israel dispersed amongst the nations would at the end time be gathered in by God and would be united as one people under one shepherd in Jerusalem in the temple on Mount Zion. And, the, and indeed, the nations, the Gentiles, would also be swept up in this final ingathering of all peoples. And so we see that then in John's theme later on, where, uh, well, even in the so-called titulus, for example, this placard that Pilate put upon the cross of Jesus, that he is the king of the Jews, and then this is in Hebrew and Greek and Roman uh, or Latin. And yes, that's no doubt 
historically the case, but this multitude of languages also indicates what we read, for example, in Zechariah 9 and Zechariah 14, that the rule, the kingdom of the Messiah would be from sea to sea. And so it would, it would encompass all peoples. So this, this deep temple thinking of John's gospel is determinative of the entire, uh, of the entire gospel, as is then the Exodus account. And John perhaps, well, Matthew certainly has it very much as well. But in John, uh, again, uh, the basic thematics of, of uh, John's gospel is introduced in the baptism of Jesus where uniquely, again, amongst the Gospels, Jesus is, and this is important, at his baptism, declared by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And within that context, then, Jesus is also seen to be the receptor of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, Jesus is declared to be the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so this this possession of the Spirit by Jesus, his function as the anointed to baptize with the Holy Spirit, is within the context, yes, of Jesus' baptism, but also within the context of his designation as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here we have then a coordination and association of the passion of Jesus, his crucifixion, as well as his status as the anointed who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And and so from that perspective then already, I also maintain and this is still somewhat of a minority view, but I think growing in popularity is that when we look at the crucifixion account in John's gospel, we are told that Jesus, and this is in John 19.30, that Jesus speaks his last word, which is tetelestai. It is accomplished. That is to say, not just things have been brought now to their end, but now the purpose of God has been brought to its end. That is to say, the purpose of God is now established. And so, tetelestai, yes, we tend to think of it as bringing something to an end, but that end is the telos, the purpose of God's sending of Jesus. And so, that telos, that end, is the beginning of all things as well. And so, then we are told that he bowed his head. And then we have very strange talk, actually. The Greek says, par edokontopenoima. Usually in our English translations, it is translated, he gave up his spirit, small s. But that's really not what the Greek says. The Greek says he handed over the spirit. And in my judgment, the spirit in that context is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. And so that we have this baptism of the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the crucified Jesus as the anointed. I think it's a deeply 
baptismal imagery. Uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 for example, in the letters of Paul, he speaks more propositionally, if you will, that we are baptized into the death of Jesus and so forth. In John's gospel, baptism is, it is established, instantiated in the cross of Jesus as the source and the form, I would wish to emphasize, of the baptismal life that the Christian receives. Dr. Weinrich, that's all very fantastic. We do need to we do need to take a break, though. Uh, we'll come back to the conversation on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about the Gospel of John with Dr. William Weinrich this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, January 9th. We're studying John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, with the Reverend Dr. William Weinrich. He serves as professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Weinrich, prior to the break, we talked a little bit about the Gospel of John as a whole, written by the beloved disciple John, his purpose of that you may believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, often translated that way or transliterated that way, Mm -hmm. and by believing have life in his name. Now we have the opportunity to dive into his Gospel, the first five verses, a very, very fantastic and famous text, I would say. This is John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is John 1, verses 1 to 5. All right, Doctor Weinrich. There's no, uh, there's no Christmas here. There's no Bethlehem or baby Jesus. But in the beginning was the Word. Although this is the Christmas Gospel, so uh, let's I, let's talk about with the Word. Let's start with with that. What's why does John begin this way? The Word. Well, yes, hologos in the Greek. Uh, I don't like, frankly, the translation "the Word." It's not wrong. But I suspect that when most people hear this, this term, they have perhaps in their mind a discrete vocable. How many words are there on the page and things like that. Mm-hmm. But logos meant speech. 
or address. Uh, and so uh, that's how I translate it. In beginning was the speech. And, and not only that, but Logos had just a remarkable range of employments in the ancient world. Uh, if you read, for example, the commentary by Origen, a third century Christian commentator, I don't know how many different uses and meanings of logos he can draw out of this. But in my judgment, the logos here primarily refers to the Torah. And uh, and if you were a Jewish rabbi and they were to talk to you about the Torah, they would say that the first creation of God was the Torah text and that the Torah text was indeed the instrumentality for the creation of the world and that more that within Torah was placed God's final intention for all humanity, namely that man love the Lord their God with their heart, soul, and mind, and, and do perfectly the will of God or to walk in his statutes. And so I think one of the, there are, to simplify a little bit, I think there are two background texts for this very first phraseology in beginning was the speech or the Torah. What does God say when he speaks? And again, I, corresponding to what I mentioned earlier on in our discussion, this includes purpose, this includes will. Uh, and so these two texts are clearly Genesis 1-1, which is explicitly echoed in the language. If you look at the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament, uh, the first words are NRK, just like in John 1-1. So there's no doubt that this is a what I'm now going to call a Christological reinterpretation, if you will of Genesis 1-1. But the other text that I think is in play is Psalm 119, which is a very long psalm, and it's an extended hymn about the Torah. And if you take a look at this psalm in view of the way Jesus is denominated in John's gospel, it is striking. Let me give you an example. Uh, verse 115, I believe it is. So Psalm 119, verse 115, I, I think it is. Your law, in some Septuagintal text, it is honomos, the law, your law. In some Septuagintal text variants, it's your logos. Your logos or your nomos is a lamp into my feet and a light into my Pat, hados, or phos. And in John's gospel, Jesus will be called logos. He will be called phos. I am the light of the world. He will be called the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so 
One thing to keep in mind here, in my judgment, is that Jesus is being depicted as the true Torah. And so the law that was given to Moses on Sinai had a certain prophetic function. It was a pointer towards the full manifestation of the will of God which God intended to be the nature of man's life. And so when we come then to, like we're kind of getting outside the boundaries of one to five, that's to be sure, but the next time Logos appears is in verse 14. And that Logos, which was in beginning and toward God and was God, now became flesh. And so Jesus is depicted here as the human form of the divine will, right? And so what what Jesus does then, yes, we can speak of it as the perfection of the law. And as we know in Jesus, as we know in Paul, the perfection of the law is the love of God and neighbor. Well, that's exactly what we find in John's gospel. I give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. How did that happen? By virtue of his willing sacrifice for the life of the world. And so, so I, what I'm trying to do here for your listener is to say that let's just take a look, Tim, at the, at the phraseology, not just the word, but the first phrase, enarche ein hologos. In beginning was the speech. This word arche is crucial. Very often in modern translation, you have a terrible mistranslation. And it goes like this In the beginning, when God created. And that translation makes arche a temporal marker at the start, right? But that's not the meaning here. Arche has the idea of fundamental archetypical principle or source, the reality that governs all things is the source out of which all things come and indeed contains within itself the purpose unto which God does what he does. And so you have then this NRK can almost mean in the deity of God the Father was the speech. And so when the Father now wishes to speak, he speaks his word which contains his will as well as the purpose unto which he does all things. And so it's not surprising then, perhaps, that the final word of Jesus on the cross is telos talk, right? Mm-hmm. Telestai. In the book of Revelation, we, we are told that Jesus is the arche and the telos, the beginning and the end. And what, the, what that would have meant for the early Jewish writers, the Jewish thinkers and the early Jewish Christian writers and thinkers was that, it, do you want to know what's in the beginning? 
not temporally understood now, but in the beginning, which is God himself. If you want to know what is the content of God's own being, you have to look at what happens at the end. And so we have this kind of language, say, in First Peter and Revelation, that Christ, I mean, it's remarkable language. Christ crucified, what, before the foundation of the world, right? Mm. That's very yeah. typical to this kind of thought that we find in John 1, 1, that the crucified Jesus is the very intentionality unto which God created man. And so we, we would expect then, perhaps in John, that the crucifixion of Jesus is not understood as Jesus enduring the wrath of God. It's not understood as a humiliation of divine majesty. It's, in fact, understood as his exaltation, as, as his glorification. And, in fact, in three different passages, the word hupsao, or ascension, exaltation, uh, is directly said to have, have been his crucifixion. So the crucifixion of Jesus is the manifestation of who God really is. And hence, we can go back to what we quoted earlier on in our conversation, that God is love, right? mm. that God is mercy, that God is long-suffering, that God is humility. And so the crucifixion of Jesus reveals God. It, it, God is not humiliated in it. He is, after all, manifested in it. And so I think within this first phraseology, NRK in Hologos, in beginning was the speech. And this speech became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the language of temple, skenao. And we beheld his glory. That's a reference to the cross. And, yeah. and so uh, I would even say this may be a, a little bit strange for your li listeners, but the, the person of Jesus, the crucified, doesn't begin in verse 14. It's already in the very first phraseology of John 1, 1. And I would even say, kind of by way of extension, that we could even, according to sense and meaning here now, translate like this, in beginning was the gospel of John. The, mm. the message of John's gospel reveals God. Right? It's, it's not just a historical account of what happened to have happened almost now 2,000 years ago or whatever. It is, in fact, a manifestation. It's a revelation. And, and so these first verses that open up the gospel of John by way of the creation notion has remarkable significance. One other thing just to note here is the verbal forms in John 1.1. These are not action verbs. These are durative imperfects. And so in beginning was the speech. That is to say, the beginning is filled with the speech of God. 
or even as, and Luther understood this, if you take a look at his commentary on Genesis, he will say that God was filled with his speech, with his word. And, and, so, uh, in, and so in a way, John is presenting a Christological interpretation of Genesis 1-1, where you actually do have action verbs. In beginning, God fed, right? Let there be. Well, there's no action verbs here in John 1 1. And so we we do have then an incipient, and the early fathers recognize this straightway. We have an incipient Trinitarian character here that God cannot be in any way abstracted from his speech. And therefore, otherwise, God is mute, right? And so if God is he who speaks, then the word of God, and we see this finally in the Council of Nicaea, the word of God must be said to be homoousios topatri, that is to say, of the self-same divine essence as is the Father himself. And so when we get then down to verse 14, and this word, this speech, which is the speech of the Father, becomes himself flesh or man, then again, as we say, how do we hear what the Father says? We hear what the Father says by contemplating, reading, studying, believing the story of Jesus, such as it will be told in the Gospel of John. And so Jesus will say over and over again, what I say, I do not say from myself, but what I say has been given me to say by him who sent me. Therefore, he who hears me, hears him who sent me. That is simply an explanation, uh, a certain kind of explication of enarche enologos. In beginning was the speech. So then that that is all just excellent, Dr. Weinrich. I really appreciate what you were saying about in in beginning in RK and understanding that not as a temporal marker. That really just opens this passage up. And and to understand, you know, the word more broadly and, and to have Psalm 119 in the background as well as Genesis 1 1 is is so important. I want to want to make sure we we keep looking at, at this text and I uh, you, you talked a lot about the word and the word being God, the speech and God's speech and, and the role there in creation as well. Uh, again, we've got about nine, 10 minutes left here. I, I want to make sure we get to, to verses four and five, particularly with the theme of, of life as it's connected and then the light that shines in the darkness. Yeah. Take, take us into those two verses and those important themes for this gospel. Well, I'm going to have to actually include three here because you can do that. I'll allow it. Because it's not, in my judgment, the language, all things de autu egenita, which you translated as all things were created through him. In my judgment, and I have various reasons for this, uh, this is not, in fact, creation talk. Rather, again, now, it, there's no doubt that the language is being derived from Genesis 1. There's no doubt about that. But Egenita, as we see elsewhere in the prologue, can be a historical sense. So 
I'm going to translate Pontadio to Egenita, all things through him happened. All things happened through him as somewhat of a summary of the Old Testament narrative. But I do want to point out to your listeners that there is a huge important punctuation problem that exists between verses 3 and 4. You translated. Do you have your Bible translation before you there, Tim? I, yes, sir. I've got, I've got the ESV in front that, of me. That's fine. Please read 3 into 4, and, and I'll, I'll stop you at an appropriate place. Okay? Okay. So this is uh, John 1, 3 and 4 from the ESV. Mm-hmm. All things were made through him, and without oh. him was not anything made that was made. Stop. In, okay. It, Without him, not anything was made, not one thing was made, that was made. Now, there's very good reasons for believing that the words, that was made, so translated, in fact, begins verse 4, rather than ending verse 3. The re- one of the most important reasons for this is that you have a very significant tense shift in the Greek, okay? And so I'm going to translate like this. All things happened through him, and without him, not one thing happened, Mm. period. What happened in him was life. Oh, wow. Yeah, I like that. And so I'm thinking of verse 3 as kind of a Verses one to five, I I believe is a uh, is is a section kind of unto itself. One might find it kind of a hymnic expression of salvation salvation history, if you will. And so I'm thinking of verse three as primarily a summary of the Old Testament narratives, especially the creation and Exodus, the prophetic pronouncements of the final ingathering of the nations, and so forth. But then. What happened in him was life, and this now is a reference to the Gospel of John. What happened in him was life is now what now I'm going to talk about through the narrative of my Gospel story. And so already then here in verse 4, what happened in him was life obviously refers to eternal life, which will be bestowed on all who believed and are baptized, but that's because the one who will become flesh is himself life. And so if you take a look again at, say, Psalm 119, the Torah, according to the the Jew and the rabbi, was life-giving. Your word brings forth life, creation story, right? Your word makes me alive. Or Psalm 19, your, your, your Torah opens the eyes, helps you to see God. And so think of that text when you read the healing of the blind man in John 9. So, so I think life here is, is a marker for Jesus as the the who is himself the the bearer of life, which is like love, like humility and mercy is a what we sometimes in dogmatics call an attribute of God, 
but what an attribute of God really was, especially if we think of things like mercy and love and, and life and so forth, these were modes, if you will, manners of God's own reality and existence. And so if you ask, if you ask the question, how does God exist? Not just does he, but in what manner does he exist? The manner of God's existence is love. The manner of God's existence is humility. The manner of God's existence here would be life. And, and so this life, we are told, is also the light of men. Uh, and again, in Psalm 119, the Torah is life. Your nomos, your logos, is a light unto my way, my path. And so, and then Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so these are, these are terminologies that are titles, names, if you will, of Jesus, but also they are precisely because they are titles of Jesus, they become markers for the Christian existence, right? It's not by accident that the earliest Christians, as we learn from the Acts of the Apostle, was the way, right? It was the way the earliest Christians denominated themselves. They didn't call themselves Christians. That came later. They called themselves the way because what was the fundamental characteristic of Christian reality was a way of life, right? And, that's, and that made then the gospel stories of Jesus so crucial because it wasn't simply dogmatic propositional, right? It actually was depicting a life lived by him who, if I might return to my earlier way of speaking, is the human reality of the divine will. Hmm. And so... And so later then in verse 5, I think this, this hymnic introduction here moves to the time of the church. Verse 3, if you will, the Old Testament. Verse 4, primarily the Christological aspect of it, which will be narrated in the Gospel of John. And then verse 5, you have another tense shift now towards the present tense. And so it kind of brings the narrative into the present time. And the light shines, present tense, in the darkness. This light cannot here simply be Jesus. It has to be the Christian reality. It has to be the Christian church, if you will. And so we might think in this context of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, so let your what light shine before men that they see your good works and then remarkable glorify your father who is in heaven, right? Mm. And so, so what I think we have in verses three through five is kind of a, a very brief, hymnically structured history of salvation summary. Old Testament, the story of Jesus, and now the time of the church, which is here denominated as light. The light shines in the darkness of sinful men, and this darkness has not brought it down. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and this 
this has not brought it down images then the cross and the resurrection right uh, if you live within the crucifixion of Jesus that is that is a as Jesus says later in the gospel I have overcome the world and so that overcoming of the world is by way of his filial truth. That is to say, he as that man who is the very image of divine obedience or obedience to the Father. Hmm. And so as long as we remain, if I can kind of put this into a slightly different discourse, if we remain within our baptisms, whereby we have been joined to Christ in his death and resurrection, whereby then we can call upon his Father also as our Father who art in heaven. As long as we are in that placement, which in John's gospel is also the place of the new eschatological temple, then the world will not overcome us. Hmm. Uh, uh, Dr. Weinrich, thank you so much for helping us to introduce the Gospel of John today. The comments on the entire Gospel, the comments on these key verses in John's Gospel have been so wonderful. Yeah. We've been looking at John 1, 1 to 5 this morning with the Reverend Dr. William Weinrich. He serves as professor of historical theology at Concordia Seminary, or Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with John 1, 1 to 5. Dr. Weinrich, thank you so much for being our guest. It was a wonderful pleasure. Thank you so much, Tim. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the Gospel of John, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.